Welcome to Cutie Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cushwood. Room Now Cutie Clinic is brought to you by our PSA All the Way campaign for the month of April, where we're talking about cases with psoriatic arthritis. Does this case have psoriatic arthritis? I don't know. What do you think? 27-year-old gal comes to me with initially an acute onset of an asymmetric oligoarthritis with knee swelling, mainly a knee effusion. No, um, no recent events, no new medicine. She had a, a URI about a week ago before this. Uh, she came in with about um, three weeks of swelling. No history of dysuria, discharge, sore throat, diarrhea. Um, she, she did have some arthralgias, myalgias, and whatnot, um, and mainly involving the neck and arms, and but also the hips and and uh, wrists. But really, she only has um, a knee that's swollen. So she gets treated symptomatically with non-steroidals, and she we do some lab tests. She comes back about two months later. Now she has two swollen knees. Interesting. Um, she did not respond very well to meloxicam, 15 milligrams a day, nor to a two-week course of prednisone. She does have a family history of psoriasis. So when you examine her, she's got, um, you know, two-plus effusion on the left, maybe a one-plus on the right. She has tender, fourth, flexor tender, palmar tender, fourth finger, flexor tendon, tenderness, tenderness, um, probably a tenosynovitis, but no palpable swelling, but it certainly is tender with movement and also with palpation. Labs, the rest of the exam is normal. No Achilles tendonitis, no enthesitis, um, nothing else going on. Labs, totally normal. UA, CBC, CMP, uric acid, 5.6. Her ANA is 1 to 160 speckled pattern. Negative tests for rheumatoid factor, CCP, sed rate, CRP were normal. B27 was negative. ACE, angiotensin converting enzyme, and parvovirus B19, IgM titers were normal. X-ray only showed an effusion. Due to the chronicity, we got an MR. No mechanical derangement. No cartilage damage. No cruciate damage. So the question is, what are you going to call this? How are you going to treat this? Um, actually, I have the advantage of having a few people follow me on social media. So I did a Twitter poll. I put this poll out there and in 24 hours. I, I got the answer to what 100 people on Twitter think. Who are they? Are they plumbers? Are they rheumatologists? I don't know. That's the risk you take with Twitter. But I asked the question, 27-year-old, she's got bilateral knee effusions. I gave them the lab results. What do you think this is? The options they had was seronegative RA, incomplete lupus, occult PSA spa, or posse JIA in the adult. What do you think was number one? Number one was occult PSA and spa. You could also say occult IBD maybe, with about half of the people believing that was the right diagnosis. Next pasta, uh, uh, most popular answer was 24% with seronegative RA, 21% with adult onset the posse articular JIA, and only 8% said occult lupus. So I ended up treating this as if this were something called psoriatic arthritis sine psoriasis, Latin sine meaning without. So can you have psoriatic arthritis patients who don't 
have psoriasis. It's pretty uncommon in the adults. No one has a hard number, but it's a single-digit number. It's less than 10%. In kids, however, juvenile-onset psoriatic arthritis, it may be as much of as 20%. Certainly, it's more than 10% of juvenile psoriatic disease. And it's basically just like this. It's asymmetric. It's oligoarticular. It's rarely polyarticular and rarely axial. Um, some have found associations with the genetic marker CW6, um, and they may have uh, evidence of either finger involvement or dactylitis has been described. Uh, obviously, when you see such cases, you have to do the, you know, the exhaustive search. You got to take off their pants. You got to look at private parts. You got to look at the crack of the butt, the belly button, examine the toes, which yes, means, means removing the socks and, you know, chancing it with the toe jam. But, you know, nails need to be looked at um, in those unusual places behind the ears, in the scalp, private parts, crack of butt, belly button. And I have found over the years that um, a quarter of young adults in whom I suspect psoriatic arthritis do have psoriatic lesions um, when I start making a really hard search. But in this particular gal, no such findings were had. She was treated initially, wanted to go light. She was treated with hydroxychloroquine, did well for a while, then not so well. We went on to a TNF inhibitor where it all went away, never came back. She's young and foolish and wanted to go off of the TNF inhibitor. She did. Wanted to go back on hydroxychloroquine. She did. And you know what else she did? Yeah, that's right. She flared again. So we're playing a little game right now. Luckily, she has mild disease. Um, and we keep asking the questions. Do you have any new skin lesions? Do you have any new bowel problems? Do you have any new back pain? Do you have any new eye problems? These are the things you have to go through. But until something else reveals itself, this is, in my humble opinion, PSA, sine psoriasis. Tune in for more great cases on QD Clinic. This is QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by our campaign on psoriatic arthritis. Our case today is what to switch to after a TNF inhibitor. So this gentleman I've been taking care of for about five or six years, he's had longstanding psoriasis and then psoriatic arthritis that developed about three or four years ago. Uh, he's 48 years old. Um, he really only has that past diverticulosis, nothing really else. Not diverticulitis, diverticulosis, and that's kind of important. Um, his psoriasis uh, was based on nail changes, skin psoriasis, oligoarticular disease involving the wrists and toes, um, and uh, he had a previous motor vehicle accident. He's done really um, very well with a TNF inhibitor. It doesn't really matter which one. Uh, it has controlled his skin uh, and his joints. But more recently, he has pain in his joints, um, mainly the MCP1 and uh, CMC on one side. Um, and he thinks that there's some swelling in those joints. When I examine him, I don't find any sidovitis. I do find some enthesitis um, in a few spots. His skin is mildly active around the belly button. And so the question really is in a case like this, um, if you st stick it out, double the dose, 
um, you know, manage this as an intercurrent flare. Maybe he's not compliant and maybe you need to scare him into compliance by saying you can't switch or you can't skip doses here because it's convenient because your skin's going to get worse, you know, first and then your joints are going to follow soon after. And I, I, so I, and so that's an important part here. We don't have a way of knowing what compliance is. Um, and I think for me, the best way is to ask him, what do you want to do? You want to stick with this drug or do you want to switch to this other new drug that I think would be great for your skin and your joints? I think people who want to stick with the drug that they uh, are on, you know, that's dance with the one that brung you kind of thinking, you know, people are adverse to change. They will either admit or not admit that they haven't been too compliant. And, well, let's just double down and see what happens. So either they'll, they'll take it like they're supposed to take it, or you could, you know, in the case of something like, um, you know, etanercept, I give them a double dose for three weeks, uh, or for adalimumab, I give them weekly um, um, uh, adalimumab for um, like four weeks and then have them come back in six weeks and see what goes on. But in general, I think this boils down to the loss of control. The, the, it's very, very clear that pretty much all the biologics, you average about a 10% loss per 10 years, I'm sorry, per year, um, so that at five years, 50% of people will not be on that biologic. Now, it's a little always front-loaded, meaning it's, it's more like um, a 15 to 20% loss in the first year or two. And then after that, it, it averages out to about 5 to 8% loss. But it's on average 10% per uh, year. And that's so your expectation that if you have someone on adalimumab or golimumab or whatever, that, you know, that half of them are going to have to be, ch- be changing within five years. Which do I change to? It depends on whether the joints are the dominant issue or the skin. Joints are easier to control than skin. Um, joints you can, you can change to um, another within the same class or you can swap classes, switch classes. Um, I tend to move, be like a one TNF inhibitor and I move on, um, especially if they never respond to the TNF inhibitor. That's a primary non-response. You should never use a second, second TNF. If it's their second TNF inhibitor, I'm going to move on. I don't care what the data says. The data says that you can go to a second, maybe a third, if it's a secondary non-response or loss of response, or it's a loss of response due to toxicity. But if they have a toxicity with TNF inhibitor, I'm not going to be playing in the TNF inhibitor class. If they have a toxicity in any class, I'm not going to continue to play within that class. So it really boils down to joints versus skin. I want to remind you, we just had a a good journal club last night discussing the um, head-to-head trial of ixekizumab versus uh, adalimumab. And you know what? The IL-17 inhibitors uh, in PSA work just as well. As the TNF inhibitors, many of us have the belief that, I don't know about the IL-17s, IL-23s, maybe they're not as good at joints, but they're better at skin. That's not true. The, these head-to-head trials are proving that they are as good. They work as fast, and they work as well. So if I'm having a problem with the joints, I can use any of the drugs. Another TNF inhibitor, I can use a JAK inhibitor, I could use, you know, whatever I can get away with. But I like going to IL-17s and or IL-23s. If it is a skin issue meaning their skin is not being controlled, then I'm switching pretty much to either, um, you know, IL-23, IL-1223, or an IL-17. 
by name, that would be Secukinumab, Ixakizumab for all 17s, Ustakinumab for the 1223, and um, Gaselkumab for the 23. Again, they're great at joints, but they're really, really good at skin. Uh, and I'm talking any skin, you know, especially difficult skin, you know, um, genital psoriasis, um, or recalcitrant, uh, recalcitrant scalp psoriasis, and then also um, palmo, uh, palmar and pustular and, and plantar, uh, especially pustular psoriasis. Those are going to need a better drug and probably an IL-1723, maybe a JAK inhibitor for the uh, palmar plantar disease. But there are just some studies um, out there that are starting to look at that. Hope you find this helpful. Tune in for more QD clinics on PSA. Welcome to QD Clinic. QD Clinic is brought to you by the PSA campaign in the month of April. I'm Jack Cushwood Room Now. Our case today is a case of colitis. And I guess the title would be, is the colitis from the drug or is it part of the syndrome, part of the spectrum of spondoarthritis? So this gentleman is a 60-year-old gentleman I've been taking care of for years. He was briefly tried on methotrexate. He was managed for many years with cyclosporin, then many years with cyclosporin and etanercept, and then over the years switched around to a few other TNF inhibitors. He always liked etanercept. He was always partial, said, I need that etanercept. And he had problematic skin and polyarticular deforming um, arthritis in the hands and feet, especially. So, um, you know, he's on, um, at the time of doing this visit, he's on prednisone, um, 10 milligrams a day. He uh, is just been moved to um, Simsia. He takes blood pressure medicines and whatnot. So the story basically is that he's on his third or fourth TNF inhibitor, and I talk him into going on to um, secukinumab, an IL-17 inhibitor. And he's only on it for about um, less than three months. I want to say it was 10 weeks, eight weeks, something like that. And then all of a sudden gets bloody diarrhea, really problematic bloody diarrhea. Um, he goes to a walk-in clinic. Um, they gave him some antibiotics uh, or something. And then he goes home. It never gets better. He gets hospitalized. He's in the hospital for five weeks with severe diarrhea and bloody diarrhea. And he gets biopsied. And the biopsy looks more like ulcerative colitis. And the question is, um, was this due to the secukinumab or was this due to um, you know, an underlying uh, degree of, of um, shall we say, um, uh, spondoarthritis, which is certainly a, a real possibility here. So, um, but the story basically gets more interesting, and that is that he gets treated. You know, the the secukinumab is stopped. He gets treated with a number of different things. Has really problematic anemia. We switch him over to a drug for his colitis. I want to say it was Azacol, and then also put him on a TNF inhibitor. And there's very, very slow, if almost no resolution to his um, uh, colitis. And uh, and then because it never goes away, uh, and we're talking now more than a year after he's still dealing with colitis. So his arthritis is fairly well controlled, and he still needs the Azacol. Um, I initially called this IL-17 inhibitor-induced colitis. 
and you can get ulcerative colitis, you can get Crohn's disease. But with time, I'm saying, no, it's part of his syndrome. He's got a seronegative arthritis with psoriasis, and maybe it's just that the IL-17 brought on his colitis, which was really dramatic. You know, he lost 20 pounds of weight. He had to have, um, you know, uh, many transfusions from blood loss. He was having up to 15 bowel movements a day. It was a mess. So what you need to know is the data on colitis risk with IL-17 inhibitors. The bottom line is it's pretty uncommon. You know, the looking at um, two different large studies of ixekizumab and secukinumab with each about four to 5,000 patients, they had, you know, in one ixekizumab uh, review, it was 19 probable uh, IBDs um, and more ulcerative colitis than Crohn's. Um, and, and in the other secukinumab, it was 21 IBD cases, more Crohn's than secukinumab, 12 to 9. But the interesting thing is what were the rates? If the person um, uh, was in a psoriasis trial, the development of Crohn's disease was 0.6 per 1,000 patient years. Ulcer colitis, about 1 per 1,000 patient years. But if you had, and it was a spondylitis trial for the IL-17 inhibitor, the rates were looks like three, two or three, two and a half to seven times higher, meaning the rate in a of secukinumab in an ankylosing spondylitis trial was 7.7 per 1,000 patient years compared to psoriasis, 0.6. And ulcerative colitis, 2.9 compared to psoriasis, 1.9. So again, a two and a half to eight-fold increased risk in patients with spondylitis. What does that mean? Well, we know spondylitis has that occult ileitis. Patients who may have uh, later on in their life develop, uh, not just ankylosing spondylitis, but now develop colitis, either ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. So again, under what circumstances do they evolve to develop their fully manifest disease, which would include colitis? We don't know, but clearly IL-17 inhibition might be the trigger that pushes someone into it, or this was just a coincident event. I bring this case up because I had another case exactly like this. Um, it was with the other IL-17 inhibitor, and they developed bad colitis, but it never went away. And we're now treating that patient you know, with a drug that works for the psoriasis and the colitis, used to kinemab, uh, and also helps the arthritis. So I think time is needed to really know this answer to the story if, as to whether this is drug-induced colitis or a diathesis of the uh, underlying disease. Hope you enjoyed these QD clinics on psoriasis.